Who's got it made? Who's living the good life? If you were a San Francisco 49ers fan, the phrase became popular last season, who's got it better than us? Nobody. And the phrase, it turned out, originated because 49ers coach's dad, when he was a kid in the 50s, was recalling life with his cousins and how they all lived on the same street and there's 10 or 15 boys that would all go out in the street and play and they'd run over to someone else's house and that boy's mom would make him a PB&J and then they'd go out and play, they'd all go back for dinner, then they'd come back and play and as boys growing up they said, who's got it better than us? And they said, nobody. And this is the question that we ask ourselves very often, who's got it better than us? Usually, the answer, though, is not nobody, but it's everybody. (laughs) Anybody but me. They've got it better than me, or they've got it better than me, or she's got it better than me, or that family's got it better than me. And so when we come across this question of who's living the good life, usually how we answer that, at least in our minds or in our hearts, is, well, everybody else is living the good life. Not me, anyone but me. Sadly, Christians kind of do this, this American dream sort of picture of the good life. And we, we, we use the word blessed to really talk about the good life. In such a way that blessed has really become just Christianese for success, or happiness, or the good life. And actually, that's not such a strange association. If you were to look carefully at the words for blessed in Old Testament and in, and in the New Testament, you'd see that the writers are trying to say something about that quality of life we call happiness or being satisfied or being fortunate. Jesus called a group of people blessed that was very, very strange. And maybe we'd be tempted to say, well, Jesus didn't really mean they were blessed the way we mean someone's got it good or got it made. Jesus must have meant something kind of spiritual. Like he, he sort of meant, yeah, they're, they're blessed even though they're not this or that. But the funny thing is, in Matthew's gospel, actually in both Matthew and Luke where the Beatitudes appear, the word Jesus uses for, for blessed or the word the gospel writers give Jesus to use or, or have Jesus using, is this street word. It's not a churchy word. It's not a word that, that maybe you'd say, okay, well, it means kind of something divine about it. No, honestly, it's just a, a generic word for saying, yeah, the, the fortunate, the one who've got it, who's got it made. Um, it, it, would, it would be used in, in other Greek writings for parents who have children that grow up to be wise and successful and wealthy. So not that different from the way we would use the word blessed, or yeah, they've got the good life. So it's not the word that Jesus uses that's different, but it's the people he uses it for. It's not the word itself that's different in Jesus' use of it, it's who he calls blessed that becomes astonishing. The gospel reading this morning we heard was the Beatitudes, and it's Jesus saying, blessed are these people, poor in spirit, those who are mourning, those who are uh, meek, those who are hungry and thirsty. And right away we're thinking, okay, Jesus, these are not the people we consider to be blessed. Even from a Jewish lens, it's the, re- it's the reason I chose the Old Testament reading this morning from the psalm that said, look, 
I'll tell you who the ones are that are blessed. The one who, whose, whose livestock never gets sick. The one whose children are always this way. And, the one, and, and honestly, if you, were, if you would just stop and to think right now, okay, who is the quintessential Christian family? What is the godly life? You would say, well, the godly life is, and maybe somewhere in your head you've said, well, it's certainly not single, so that's strike one against me. You know, and in the godly life, you've got, you've got to be married in the godly life. And then in, in the God-blessed life, you've got to have kids. And, you know, I don't have any kids. And then in the God-blessed life, you've got to have kids that are perfect. Uh, and then you've got to, you know, that memorize, the, you know, the whole Torah by the time they're six, you know. And, and you, you go on, you, and they have this kind of job. And, and the, the, you know, everyone can talk about mothers staying home to raise kids because they have husbands who make X amount of money that affords that luxury, but clearly that's never going to be me. And you go on and on and on. And as you sketch out the picture of what the godly life supposedly looks like, you can't help but say, boy, I don't know if that's me. And even in his own day, when Jesus stood up and said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right off the bat, people would have said, uh, excuse me, that's, that's not what the Psalms say. I mean, the Psalms confess that they are often poor in spirit, but they don't think that's a good thing. <laughs> they would much rather be at this place of strength. They would much rather be on top of the game. They would much rather not be the meek. They would much rather be the strong. They would much rather be the dominant. They would have much rather been the people that showed Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, who was really boss. This is the tone you kind of feel when you read the Psalms. You, you read these prayers that are kind of like our prayers, and they're saying, hey, God, you promised, so how about you do this? How about you show him? How about you let us be the king of the hill? And they spent a lot of years saying, and how come we're not? And how come nothing's different? And how come here we are again, getting marginalized and oppressed and Jesus walks in one day and says, actually, to those very ones who are poor in spirit, to those very ones who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness and justice, to those very ones who are mourning and grieving, to you I say, you're blessed. Now this is puzzling because now we want to know, okay, Jesus, are you saying that they are blessed because they are that way? The Sermon on the Mount, I think I mentioned last week, is the most written about, most taught on passage of Scripture in the whole of human, you know, of Scripture's history, in the last couple thousand years, okay? So, so it, it takes some boldness for a church to say, we're going to do a series on the Sermon on the Mount, because this is the most taught on, written about text. The Beatitudes are how the sermon opens, these eight blessings, these eight Blesseds that Jesus announces. Early on, there was a theologian that said, you know, maybe the Beatitudes are a ladder of virtue. Maybe they're meant to be this kind of progression that we take, that we start out by saying that we're poor in spirit, and that's really, repent, uh, that's really uh, um, confession, and then you go to mourning, and that's really repentance, and then you move on to meekness, and, and he sort of contrived this thing. But, it, but if you look at it, you'd say, well... It's kind of there, but you're kind of making that fit. It's not exactly a ladder of virtue. 
The, the other problem with the ladder of virtue approach to the Beatitudes is it makes it sound like it's extra credit. You know, it's like, well, what if I only want the first Beatitude? Like, I'm good. I don't need all eight. <laughs> well, is that what Jesus is saying? Is here's eight things. Strive for it. But if you quit at three, hey, at least you got three. <laughs> I think what Jesus is up to here in the Beatitudes is something quite a bit more radical than a ladder of virtue. I think what Jesus is up to is a very shocking reversal of things. He's saying, look, even though you are this, you will be this. Even though you are the mourning, you will be the comforted. Even though you are the meek, you will inherit the earth. You're like, well, that, that, I have not seen that to be true. So it's this reversal. But it's also kind of an announcement. It's also kind of an announcement that says, look, in this new community, we said last week the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' Magna Carta. It's Jesus' constitution of a new people. It's not individual ethical advice. It's Jesus saying, I am founding a new people in my name, a new community, and this is your constitution. This sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it's almost as if he's saying in the Beatitudes, and listen, I know, some of you are going to find yourselves as the desperate, hopeless, poor in spirit, crushed ones. Some of you in this community are mourning. You're grieving. Some of you in this community are meek. Some of you in this community... And he goes on and on and on. He's almost like he's saying, some of you are this, and some of you are that. But if you look towards the back half of this list, and we're going to look quickly at it in just a moment. The first four, you say, okay, poor in spirit, you know, mourning, meek, hungry and thirsty. But the back four seem to be a little more descriptive of a kind of life. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted it almost seems like Jesus is saying, okay, this is the way we live now. We are not people of violence. We are people of peace. And you have to imagine that everybody in the background was probably thinking, Jesus, are you naive? Are you naive? Blessed are the peacemakers. Don't you know that's not how work gets done in this world? Don't you know that if somebody doesn't stand up to the Romans and fight for our rights. Jesus, don't you know that these kind of people don't win? The announcement of the Beatitudes is Jesus saying, actually, this is precisely the kind of life that gets vindicated in the end. This is precisely the kind of life that wins in the end. Let's go through the list. Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything you think of about this phrase is probably on the mark. Those with nothing, those who are empty, those who are bankrupt. The common English Bible, which I use sometimes as a translation, phrases it as the people who are hopeless. It's interesting because poor in spirit is the very opposite of the great American proverb, God helps those who help themselves. Blessed are the ones who know 
they could never help themselves. Those who mourn, shall be com- for they shall be comforted. Jesus is talking about the people who understand that life isn't all victory and smiles and cheers. That life is tainted by the shadow of death. We live under it. We walk in it. It looms over us. Human life in some way is conditioned by this knowledge that death is coming. And those who mourn know it all too well. Yet Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn because you will be comforted. Your sorrow will not be final. Your sadness will not be the end. There is no loneliness like the loneliness of grief. There's no loneliness like the, the slow walk toward death because nobody is with you in that hour. You think of the many hospital rooms that you've been in, that I've been in. You want to be near the dying, but the dying will always feel alone. Jesus is about to say, He's about to go with us in our death so that even in our death we will not be alone. Imagine that. Who else could do that? I can't do that for my family. But Jesus did that for us. And so he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. Then he says, The meek, the ones who are humble, the ones who are content, they're about to have it all. They're going to inherit the earth. And then he says, Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. You know, hunger and thirst for righteousness is much more than this kind of, you know, experiential, oh, yes, God, I really do want righteousness. Kind of the emotional youth group altar call kind of moment of like, well, are you really hungry for me? Yes, I'm really hungry for righteousness. Well, if you were, you wouldn't sin, but I'm really hungry now. N.T. Wright suggests that this idea of righteousness is very much related to the sense of justice, of God setting right. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those longing for the world to be set right. You don't have to dig very deep to find that place. Read the news. Bombings every day. Strife, war, and all of a sudden the ache sits in you. Oh God. Oh God, I'm hungry for this to be set right. And Jesus says, that longing will be filled. It will happen. Then he says, the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Imagine a group of people that say, I refuse vengeance because it's not mine to give out. The illusion of justice when humans are involved is that we can execute justice perfectly, but we can't. This is why when the people brought the sinful woman to Jesus and said, Jesus, We caught her, do justice, and the first thing Jesus wants us to know about justice is that you are not qualified to execute it. He says, oh, oh, have any of you not sinned? If you haven't sinned, then you can execute justice. You that are so self-righteous that say, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, justice must be served, let's go bomb them. And Jesus says, I'm sorry. Are you qualified to execute justice? 
Are you without sin? Are you so righteous? And all of a sudden we realize we need mercy too, don't we? Blessed are the merciful, for they will also receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, the Jews in the first century were so focused on external purity, ritual purity, the kind of purity that said, I won't eat with that guy, and I won't touch that woman, and I won't do this, and I won't do that. And Jesus says, purity matters, but not that kind of purity. Not the kind of purity that is built on exclusion, but the kind of purity that rises up in your heart. That's the kind of purity. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, children of God. What does it mean? What, did it, what, what would it have meant for the zealots in Jesus' day who said, Listen, Jesus, we know the way to get God to act. We'll pick a fight with the Romans and force God's hand to intervene, and in that way, He'll act. And Jesus says, Yeah, you want to know who the true Israel is? You want to know who the true children of God are? It's not the ones who choose violence. Such a way of life will encounter opposition. Which is why he ends the Beatitudes by saying, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake... You're going to find it. Live this way, and you will be an implicit indictment on the world. You don't have to stand on a street corner and condemn anybody. Just living this way is an implicit condemnation of the other kind of life. To say, no, I I refuse this. (laughs) It's a curious uh, social experiment to just voice something on Facebook about peacemaking or nonviolence in reference to gun control. Just, just do it as a social experiment. <laughs> You'll see there's something we love more than Jesus. You'll see that there's something we love more than His way. It's the American way. And Jesus has come to cut against it. And it's got to make us rethink everything. 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 Why would anyone want to live this way? Why would such an upside-down kind of life become the blessed life? How in the world could this be true, Jesus? You know why it's true? Because this is exactly how Jesus lived. Jesus was the one who became the poor in spirit who said, I'm, I'm completely dependent. Jesus was the one who mourned, who wept over death. Jesus was the one who knew what it was like to be meek, to make himself low. Jesus was the one who longed, who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Jesus was the one who showed mercy to people that nobody wanted to show mercy to. Jesus was the one who was pure from the inside out so that his purity didn't depend on excluding others. Jesus was the one who told Peter to put away the sword even in the garden. Jesus chose peace over self-defense. This kind of life is the life Jesus lived. And was he persecuted for righteousness' sake? Yeah. All the way to the cross. Jesus chose this life and was killed for it. And everything in our culture says, you see, 
It doesn't work. That kind of life is just not practical, Mr. Pastor Guy. You and your lofty ideals. Who can live this way? You'll get yourself killed if you live this way. Right. You know the guy we worship? He did too. He lived this way and got himself killed. (laughs) Oh, now we're in trouble. But see, it's because Jesus came low. It's because Jesus took on our brokenness. It's because Jesus went to the very bottom to be with us even in our death. It's because of this. It's because Jesus shares in our brokenness that we can share in His blessedness. Paul would write, He became poor so that we might become rich. He became low so that we could be lifted up. Jesus did this not just to show us some kind of good example of the model life. Jesus did this to transform it. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann talked about the idea of a suffering God. And he said, you know, the idols of our day, and he was talking about Germany of the 20th century, very much true of America in the 21st century, or maybe true of every dominant society in every century, but Moltmann said... You know, the idols of power and of success cannot help you in your time of pain. How many rich people do you know that have not been able to avoid cancer? How many famous influential leaders cannot escape tragedy? Because power and success are of no help in your time of pain. Moltmann says only a suffering God can help. Only a God who came low into our brokenness. So Jesus takes it on, and this is what God does. Watch this. Jesus says, this is the way we live. This is the way we love. And it's going to result in the world crucifying you. And he dies. And on that Friday, everybody thought, okay, this is it. We knew it. We knew this kind of life doesn't work. We knew that this Messiah and all of his ideals and his wonderful sermon, that there's no way this was going to work. And on Saturday, the disciples are disillusioned and their, their heads are hung low and they thought it was such a nice vision and it was such a great sermon. Remember that sermon? What a lovely sermon. But it's over. It doesn't work. We knew it didn't work. And then all of a sudden, Sunday morning, God the Father reached down and raised Jesus from the dead. And do you know the announcement he made to the whole, whole world? He said, you know what? This is my vindication of Jesus. This is my validation that everything Jesus said in the Beatitudes, that this life is the life that triumphs in the end, that this way is the way that wins out at last, this way (laughs) wins. And that's what God did on Easter to say, Jesus was right. What that means for us is something very profound, even though it sounds so basic. It means that we're able to embrace this way. We say, Glenn, but that's impossible. I mean, what if we sat down and and, and wrote out the counter, the anti-Beatitudes, or the Beatitudes of our culture? Glenn, it's nice that God vindicated Jesus by raising Him from the dead, but I could never embrace that kind of life. After all, the Beatitudes of our day are... Blessed are the self-sufficient who never have to depend on anybody. 
saved enough. Blessed are the upbeat, because nobody wants to be around a downer. (laughs) Blessed are the dominant, for they get to rule the world. Blessed are the indifferent. All this hungering and thirsting stuff, that's a bit much, don't you think? Blessed are the indifferent, for they can turn a blind eye to the injustice of the world. Blessed are the religious, because you get to choose your friends. Blessed are the ruthless, because some people don't deserve mercy. Blessed are the powerful, they will never be hurt. Blessed are the popular, for life is all about being loved. How in the world, church, could we live against this? How could we live in such a world against the stream when everything reinforces those messages? Everything reinforces it. Everything reinforces it. There's one truth we've got to get inside our hearts, and it's this. That in Christ, our blessedness trumps our brokenness. Say this with me. Say, in Christ, our blessedness trumps our brokenness. It's stronger than it. And what I mean is at least three things. Our blessedness, your blessedness becomes the truer word. It is the most true thing about you because it's what Jesus says. See, growing up, we're kind of used to hearing that the thing that's most true about you is your failure. Your lack of ability to perform. Your imperfection. Your failing as a mom. Your failing as a dad. Your failing as a friend. Your failing in college. Your failing. It's just you. It's your brokenness. And Jesus says, yeah, I don't disagree. There is brokenness. There is sin. There is selfishness. But you know what's more true than that is that in me, I make you blessed. I call you blessed. This is something I think for all of us, even in church, that we don't truly believe. We somehow think that the gospel says we'll be blessed if we could just get our behavior together. And we'd be blessed if, if we could just do this right. And so when life falls apart, we say, well, it must be because my behavior was not together. Because if my behavior was together, then my circumstances would be better. And Jesus says, in the midst of your brokenness, of your situations and of your heart, I've come to you and call you blessed. This is the truest word about you. But not only is it the truer word, your blessedness is the final word. Did you know that? If you are in Christ, this is what Paul means in Romans 8, which says, if you are in Christ, there is no more condemnation. It means no other verdict gets to be the final verdict. 
No other word gets to be the last word. Well, no, but Glenn, I mean, I had this, this thing. I mean, you, look, you can't change the reality. This is my life, and this is this, and this is that. Right, right, right. Those are all different words, different verdicts, at different points of your life, but it's not the final one. The final one is your blessedness. Imagine really believing that. Imagine really grasping that. Letting, letting that get inside of you. We tend, what we tend to do is two extremes. The one is to say, hey, listen, man. Yeah, you're blessed, but you don't get to decide what that blessing is, you know. And so you kind of have this a little bit off on the deep end kind of approach that says, yeah, God is good, but hey, you and I don't always know what good means. And that's true to a degree. Because if we also have the image of God in us, I think there's something in us that says, you know what, genocide is not good. That's not good. You can't look at the people who lived through Rwanda and say, God is good, but, and, and maybe this is okay because you just don't know what good is. Huh? Well, then nothing has any meaning, right? Deconstruct it all. Oral Roberts in little prairie country, Oklahoma, began to say something which in his context was pretty revolutionary. God is a good God. (laughs) And that was so mind-blowing at the time because people didn't think so. I mean, they sort of heard he was good, but if goodness meant that he willed genocide on the world, then I don't know if that goodness is a goodness we can all good (laughs) but see the other flip side is people kind of ran with that god is a good god and said okay so because god is a good god he wants me to have everything i want to have so come on lexus every sickness will be healed every this you know and all of a sudden it's like if i know what goodness is then it's definitely that and you know what we're missing in this equation time in the Beatitudes, there is a future tense to the promises. Those who mourn will be comforted. In the end, God's vision of the world made new is not a world with cancer and genocide. God's vision of the world made new is not a world with addiction and sin. God's vision of a world made new is everything put back together again so we don't want to swing on the one side and say well i don't know maybe that is god's will and we just don't know what good means nor do we want to swing and say i'll tell you what good means it means a new job right now hallelujah every day is sunday (laughs) instead of saying what the beatitudes say My pronouncement of blessing, Jesus says, will be the last word. It's going to be the last word. Everything along the way may be broken and messed up and hard and difficult and weeping. You may be longing for things to be set right now, but you will one day have that longing filled. It's coming. Your blessedness is the truer word. Your blessedness is the final word. Finally... Your blessedness is the transforming word. 
we have to keep coming back to this. Because we cannot run out of here and say, all right, well, okay, well, so I'm going to live this way. All right, Lord, I'm going to go be merciful and I'm going to be a peacemaker and I'm going to... No, 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 no. It's the word of Christ that says to us, you're blessed, that changes you from the inside out. Because the truth is, we don't on our own want to live this way. We don't want to embrace this new constitution of a new people. We're like, no, I like the other constitution with my rights better. I like rights. There's nothing in the Beatitudes about blessed are those who defend their rights. I know, I'm treading on toes here. I'm sorry, but Jesus said it. We don't want to live this way. We don't. But the only way you can is when you let the blessing of Christ be the transforming word inside you. Transforming your heart. So that all of a sudden you say, all right, Lord, help me to truly be merciful, to truly be pure in heart. You know, the beauty of the gospel is we come to Jesus confessing our brokenness and he says, yes, yes, you're right. We agree with him about our brokenness. We say, Jesus, you're right, I am broken. And then he declares over us our blessedness and says, but this is now who you are. You're righteous. You're a child of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're beloved. You are blessed. This is it. And then the rest of our Christian life is us coming into agreement with that word. (laughs) See, first we have to agree with the word about our brokenness. But then when Christ says, all right, and I speak my blessedness over you, or the Father speaks it over you because of Jesus, then we spend the rest of our Christian life saying, all right, God, can I really agree with you about my blessedness? Can I really believe that? Lord, help us to believe it. Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to read a prayer over you to set you up for just a moment or two of quiet confession. Because the thing to do, you know, what the world says to do is just ignore your sin. Don't, Don't even call it sin. We just want affirmation. Just affirm me. Affirm me for who I am. And that's not the gospel. The gospel says, no, actually, you first need to confess your brokenness and then Jesus will declare your blessedness. Confess your brokenness, He will declare your blessedness. But this, affirm me for who I am, is a cheap imitation of it. That's not the real thing. That's not what you really want. You don't want tolerance. You don't want to be tolerated or or lightly, casually, flippantly affirmed. You want to be beloved. You want to be blessed by the Father. So Lord, here we are with nothing. Hopeless, and sad, and full of grief. We're not looking to dominate. We just long for things to be set right. We don't want revenge, or to be religious, or to pick a fight, though we know sometimes others bring the fight to us. But Jesus, You came to us. You brought Your rule to us, and invited us in. In spite of where we are or who we are, you bring your blessing to us. We say that this humble cross-shaped kind of life is the one that lasts.
the one that wins out in the end. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe that in you our blessedness trumps our brokenness. And that because of that, we are truly the lucky ones, the blessed ones. Amen.